Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, founder and owner of the Tobacco Barn Whiskey Distillery, Scott Sanders. Hey, what you drink? Okay, we're at this again. We're at this one more time. And with this conversation, I, I just know that this is going to be amazing. And I say that every time. That's because my, expectation, my expectations uh, rise just a little bit with every person that I speak with. This conversation is no different. Uh, I'm going to be meeting with Scott Sanders, and not only is he a real leadership dude with some military leadership, some corporate leadership experience, uh, not only is he a jazz dude, we talked a little bit, and he's like old school smooth jazz, I think even before they were calling it smooth jazz. Uh, But this guy not only has some whiskey chops, he actually owns and runs a distillery. So we're going to get some inside track information on whiskey, jazz, and leadership. Scott, I am so excited to have you on this podcast. Welcome to the show, my man. Well, it's great to be here with you, Galen. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, hey, man, I'll tell you, you, you are the first uh, actual distillery that I've had on. Uh, you're not the first I've talked to because, as I've shared with so many people, I am stalking the folks over at Uncle Nearest. So we're going to find a way to make them happen. But this this is about Tobacco Barn uh, today because, Scott, I've got so many questions about demystifying whiskey uh, and understanding it technically as well as the metaphor. So i got questions for you. But the first question and everyone knows that this is the uh, really, really important question. So what you drinking? Okay, I'm drinking some single barrel tobacco barn distillery bourbon. It's a little bit over four years old. It's uh, number three char, 30-gallon barrel. And uh, it's about 25% rye in the mash bill. So it goes, it's, it's a good Maryland bourbon mash bill. Oh my gosh! See, the, 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 you can you can tell when you're working with talking with someone who knows how to do this whiskey thing for real because he, he he's talking about it, the mash bill. He's talking about the actual composition, how much rye is in this composition. So, uh, I, I'm boy, I can't wait to get in. Uh, so for me, I, I decided to go with this whiskey that I picked up the last time I was in Kentucky. 
And um, because Kentucky tends to be where I get a lot of my whiskeys. And I went into this liquor store. They had a whole lot of things that I had seen before. They had a few things that I, I hadn't seen before. And I uh, kind of shared my uh, a photo of my personal stash with the manager there. And he got really, really excited. And he said, well, if this is what you've got at home, uh, I'm going to share with you what you need to take with you. And he brought out light whiskey. And I didn't know anything about light whiskey. And quite honestly, I, I wasn't really impressed with the name of it. You know, he was pretty passionate about it. And so I said, okay, fine, let's, let's go ahead and put that in there. And if you think that that's going to fit the profile that I'm building at home, then let's do it. And I didn't even think about it further than that until I got home and, and realized that uh, what this light whiskey is, it's 139.8% proof. So... Boy, this is like some real stuff. So, and it's surprisingly become one of my favorite, even to the point where, uh, you know, I, I nurse this. I can't hit this too hard for a variety of reasons. Number one, you know, if you if you strike a match, <laughs> you know, this is some pretty high proof stuff. And then number two, it's quite tasty, and I can't find this in my local store. So that's what I'm going to drink tonight. So I'm going to crack this open. I'm just go ahead and see if. All right. Do you know what what uh, kind of mash bill is? Is it more of a weeded whiskey? Is it? I, I don't know the makeup of this. Like I said, I, I just took it because he referred it. I'm, I'm going to have to look into that uh, because I don't know the build. I don't know the makeup. I just know that it's tasty. I have a tendency to like weeded whiskeys. So the other things that I drink tend to be weeded whiskeys and the, whether or not they're good or not uh, really has to do with <laughs> whether or not I like it. <laughs> so um, l let's get into this conversation because I, I am really anticipating a, a real education because like I said, I, I just, I know what I like. And that's about as, you know, occasionally I will go to a site and do some research on what I like. But beyond that, if I don't like it, then I have a tendency, I'm kind of strange this way. If I don't like it, I have a tendency not to drink it. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about what is whiskey? What is bourbon? How did you get into this space that you're in? Um, because we're just going to seize this opportunity to pick your brain about, about whiskey. So take us down that journey, man. Sure. So it's a couple, two different subject areas. Let's talk about whiskey and bourbons first. And then, uh, I'll tell you about how I got into this, which is kind of interesting. It, it's kind of a pirate story cause it started off with pirates. So, um, <laughs> so whiskey. I'll call it the family name. And then there's different kids and they all have different rule sets, protocol, law, depending on what it is and, and where you make it. So um, there's whiskey and then there's bourbon. It's a specific type of whiskey. There's rye whiskey. We're talking about Uncle Nearest. That's a Tennessee whiskey. There's scotch. 
there's Irish whiskey, there's Japanese whiskey. They all have different rule sets. So I'm a bourbon guy. So I know those, that protocol because it's very strict and how you do it. Um, it has to be a minimum of 51% corn, which makes it American because corn is an American grain. Um, and this is, by the way, Congress passes back in 1964. So, And bourbon can be made, has to be made in the United States. So I know Kentucky makes 99% and they make some damn good bourbon. But there, I think there's about 48 states that uh, that produce some type of bourbon here. So a minimum of 51% corn in the mash bill recipe, whatever you want to call it. And the other 49% can be more corn, rye, barley, wheat. Just has to be another cereal grain. What has to be water, has to be pure water. And then a new charred oak barrel every time. And that's it. So it's kind of the purest expression of a farmer, a distiller's uh, talents. I'll put it that way. So whiskey, we can make the exact same thing, our bourbon mash, if we put it in a used barrel, it's called whiskey. It's not called bourbon because bourbon has to go in a new barrel. So, you know, and there's a whole bunch of other things. I mean, there's, there's about 28 different things. Like you can't distill it over 160 proof. You put it in a barrel no higher than 125 goes in a bottle, no lower than 80 proof and, you know, no coloring, no flavoring, no additives, all those types of things. Oh, see now that boy, that's a real education. I mean, there's, you know, I, I love understanding that there are different families or different children within the whiskey family, because that makes so much sense to me. And I suspect it makes a lot of sense to my listeners as well, because I have always found myself or thought of myself as a bourbon guy, but there are just so many things that I like that aren't technically bourbons. <laughs> well, we're talking about Uncle Nerves, and that's a Tennessee whiskey. The reason it's not whiskey is a technicality, because Tennessee whiskey is its own category. They, uh, they filter it through uh, maple charcoal. So it comes off the still of its bourbon, goes straight in a barrel, but they put it, they filter it through maple charcoal that technically colors it and flavors it. So it's not bourbon, but you don't have to worry for Brown and Foreman. They're making billions of dollars. <laughs> so okay. they've turned that Tennessee whiskey category into the world's leading. And by the way, only in America do we care about if it's Tennessee whiskey or bourbon. If you go to Europe, they all call Jack Daniels bourbon. So that, there's no differentiation there. Got it. Got it. Well, hey, well, tell me a little bit about you and 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 your journey and and how did you get into this space that you're in? I, I would love to hear how pirates are involved, because that sounds like a compelling story. So I used I was in the Navy and I was an admiral um, and I ran the International Counter Piracy Task Force off Somalia back in 2009 and 2010. For everybody who's been in the Navy, the Navy's a bunch of cheapskates. So, uh, they, you know, they'll spend billions of dollars on ships and airplanes, but boy, when it comes to little things, they're chintzy. So I'm meeting with uh, politicians, a lot of other admirals from other nations. And this, and the first time I go, uh, I'm meeting with a Pakistani admiral. I think they was the first one. And so I'm going to talk to him and I get a... Uh, 
a very nice, uh, probably sterling silver peacock thing from, you know, probably the National Museum. And all I had to give them was a ship's ball cap. I mean, I felt so horrible that I, you know, this is all the only gift. And so I said, hey, is this all we have? And uh, and they go, yeah, that's, that's, sir, we don't have a budget for that. So praise the Lord, we were pulling into port that had a liquor store. And I just went out of my own pocket and I bought four cases of Jack Daniels. (laughs) It's, It's the international currency. And so uh, I had that. Um, and, and again, I go back to nobody outside the U.S. thinks that Jack Daniels or any Tennessee whiskey is a bourbon. It's, it's bourbon to them. And bourbon is the international language. So uh, and then my wife sent me one of those little gold Sharpie pens. And so I'd say, hey, thanks for helping me fight pirates. Love and kisses, Admiral Sanders. And as I'd say, after I started handing out Jack Daniels, I was the most popular date in the Gulf of Aden for six months. I mean, I was, uh, I'm nobody in the Navy. I've been on Chinese warships three times. There's no reason I should have done that, except the Admiral wanted another bottle of bourbon. (laughs) I've been on Russian ships, everybody in Europe, Thailand, Japan, Korea. I was invited to everybody's ship because they knew I was bringing bourbon. Yeah, so so basically, we got to have this guy because he's he's bringing the juice, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. So now, how do you end up getting into a position where you are making this stuff yourself? Because you know, I, I've talked with a number of people who've got military background, and I've got you know some of the episodes I've I've talked with uh, Mr. Philip Boyd, who's got some Navy experience. But he didn't. He didn't go off and buy a distillery. So how does that happen? So I had some friends. I have a couple friends, and we're we're Scotch guys and bourbon guys. I'll call it that. And so we, and then so I came back um, uh, from this piracy gig, and I'm sitting down with them. We're we're toasting one night, having a little drink, and um, I said, "Hey, you know, I know you. Uh, we all like bourbon, but it is world renowned. It's it's got a lot of resonance around the world, and." And then my one friend, Dan, and he's the master distiller now, he goes, well, you know, I had uh, I had the number three license in the United States to distill corn into ethanol during the fuel crisis in the late 70s. Huh. So he knew the chemistry. He knew, you know, he knew that it's, you know, it's, it's different. He's making ethanol, but it's pretty darn close to making whiskey. And then my other friend who's, uh, I'm Navy, one's never been in the service, that's Dan. And then the other one is a Marine, Sean, you know, Marines are really good at understanding regulations and they're like a dog on a bone. They just gotta know why this, that, and the other. And so Sean said, Hey, you know, uh, they're changing the laws and you know, they just, uh, this is 2010. So craft distilling was really, really new back then. In fact, it was still, it only been legal in Maryland a couple of years. And it was still illegal in our county. So what we did, we spent about three years doing industry survey, which our wives like to say was excessive drinking, but we still call it industry <laughs> survey. And then we put together a business plan, look, see how it might go. And then we decided to launch. And then I uh, I said, hey, I'm retiring from the Navy first because I don't want to have to go through that, you know, that legal review to own a distillery and be an admiral in the Navy. So 
I retired in 2013 and we started the distillery in 2014. Wow. I mean, that that's, that's quite the story. So I, I'm just lucky. I, I read, I, I fell in with two of the perfect partners. We have a great synergy between us. We all overlap a little bit and that, but we do completely different functions in the distillery. Wow. Yeah. So let's get into that, into that conversation because we were talking a little bit earlier about the, the synergy or the intersection between jazz and, and leadership. And for me, it's about this metaphor that you've got to get from point A to point B and, and there may not be sheet music or there may not be a script laid out and things, you know, the, the one thing I know for sure is that every plan will not, every plan will fail at some point. And you've got to be able to still get to that end point. And I, I can think of no place where that would be more mission critical than in the military. Right. When 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 the plan is not developing the way it was drawn up back uh, at home, you still have to get to the you still have to get to the point. Right. You still have to complete the mission. And that's where jazz comes in. So talk to me a little bit about how that metaphor works for you, uh, because I, I, I'm just a corporate dude. <laughs> you're you're an actual military dude so how does that metaphor work for you about jazz uh, and leadership sure I, and and it's not apparent when you look at it but it's there once you understand so i'm a carrier i used to fly airplanes off carriers so it's kind of a dangerous thing to do even in very good conditions and let alone if it's bad condition but when you go through the training and the process to do it, you just do the same thing over and over and over, and you don't deviate. Mm. And in in leadership, you kind of teach uh, the capability, and the, that's kind of the beginning phases. And then there's a thing called capacity, mm. and that's like when no plan survives the first shot with the enemy type of thing. Mm. So. So just, you know, a lot of people listen to jazz and they go, yeah, it's unstructured. They don't know, you know, that's not really there. But if you look at good jazz musicians and good jazz quartets, duos, whatever it is, they know what they're doing. It doesn't look like they do, but they know exactly because they've done it thousands of times already. Mm -hmm. So it's already there. You can do, you can land on an aircraft carrier a lot. You do that a lot of times. Or first you do it on land, then you go out there, and then you do it in bad weather, and then you do it at night, and then you do it with when one of your engines, you know, stops working, then you do it when your flaps don't work, you know, so you get all these things, and that's the capacity thing. Mm. So you have the capability to be able to fly or play jazz, but the capacity thing is, is what, what happens when, hey, what happens when Galen misses that note, you know? Well, we just keep doing this and it sounds like that's the way it's supposed to be, you know? And so you don't skip a beat here. Wow. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, that makes sense. It, it, it reminds me of a story that I heard about Herbie Hancock from Herbie Hancock. Uh, he They were doing this tribute to Miles Davis and Herbie Hancock was was talking about when he was you know, pretty young and it was his first time playing with Miles Davis, and he was a bit starstruck. 
Uh, he was accomplished at that age already, obviously, in order to be able to play with Miles Davis, but he was still starstruck because this is the Miles Davis. And he was on stage and he uh, played a wrong note. And he was like, oh my God. So he went into this kind of panic. Oh my God, that, I, I played the wrong note. And Miles Davis, who didn't miss much, picked up on the fact that he played the wrong note. And in the moment, Miles Davis adjusted his key and played off of that wrong note and made the entire set sound amazing because he picked up on what was happening. And uh, I think from there came uh, one of Miles Davis's fa famous quotes where he said, uh, if you play a wrong note, it's the next note that, that determines whether that note was good or bad. That just, that just really brings to light what you were just talking about, that uh, yeah, you've got the capability because we've practiced it and within that there is right and wrong, but then do you have the capacity to adjust uh, and and do like uh, Ken Blanchard says. Ken Blanchard says there isn't in leadership there is no right or wrong. There's only effective and ineffective. And I think that's that's really kind of what you're what you're talking about here. You know, it's and that that capability capacity thing has been drummed into my head as a military leader for a long time, and it was shocking. Yes, so we had the Super Bowl and. In one of the post-game interviews, the Rams coach, Sean Payton, talked about capability and capacity because mm. he'd had, he'd gone to a leadership seminar where they talked about this by a, uh, obviously, former Special Forces guy or something in there. And he said, yeah, my guys had the capability. They got really good players, but the capacity in there to adjust when they're doing different stunts, when you fall down, when a guy, you know, it's just all the different things that goes on on a football field, let alone, you know, when you're playing jazz or when you're flying airplanes. I mean, it's just, it's all the same. It, I wouldn't say it's the same. It's very similar. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.